Hi, this is Lisa Clank. I wrote for Star Trek Voyager for three seasons, and you're listening to Trek Untold. to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. And more importantly, welcome back to part two of my interview with Lisa Klink. In case you missed it, Lisa was a writer on DS9 and executive story editor on Voyager, and has been credited with writing 15 episodes by herself on Star Trek series, 14 of those being from Voyager. Lisa was also a producer on shows like Roswell and Martial Law, which regular fans of this podcast know is a personal favorite of mine. And she also wrote episodes for other TV shows like Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, 1-800-Missing, Painkiller Jane, Pandora, and another Gene Roddenberry show, Earth Final Conflict, which we're going to spend some time talking about today too. As for Trek, the first part of this conversation had Lisa discussing her origins as a professional screenwriter and a handful of her Voyager episodes as well as her DS9 episode Hippocratic Oath. This time, we're going to finish talking about her time on the Voyager writing team with her role as executive story editor, and we're also going to chat about another unique piece of Star Trek history that also happened to take place in Vegas. You see, Lisa was the writer for the Borg invasion at the Star Trek experience. It doesn't get more obscure than that, and it was pretty cool learning about that and the process to make that come to life. We also got a few more surprises on the way, so stay tuned for those. So with all that said, stick around because today it is time to get the rest of the story from Lisa Klink. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe you want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at trekuntold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
And welcome back to Trek Untold. And joining us once again on the other side of the screen, she's back for part two. We've got Lisa Klink. Lisa, how's it going today? It's going pretty well. How about you? I'm doing good. Thank you again for coming back for part two, because we have a whole lot more Trek to talk about here. And we've got a whole <laughs> lot of other things to discuss in this episode, too, because, you know, there's besides just Star Trek, there's a lot of other really cool things on your resume here. And, uh, you know, one of them I think we have to talk about right now, totally on Star Trek related, but we got to talk Jeopardy. <laughs> not only were you on the show, you killed it. You had like a multiple time run on that show. Uh, you, you filled your pockets with a lot of gold press latinum. I, I would love to hear about your time on Jeopardy and just, I guess, starting at the very beginning here, like how did you actually get on the show? How did someone get cast to be on Jeopardy? Uh, well, at the time you would, well, um, they had an online, uh, inter- online quiz first, and that was okay. the first thing you had to take. Um, and you had to get a certain score that they would tell you what it was. We had to get a certain score before you got passed on to the next um, step, which was the interview, uh, which at time at the time was in person. Now I think they do it over Zoom. Hmm. Um, but you would go in and basically play a sample game and kind of you know banter with the host and you know basically act like you were on the show. <laughs> and then if you passed that, you sort of got put in a a, a pile of potential contestants. And they told you that, you know, they could call you anytime, you know, in the next couple of years, um, you know, to come and, and be on the show. Uh, so they did. They called me probably seven or eight months later wow. um, and said that, you know, they they had room for me. And and would I, you know, am I available to be on the show, which I was, fortunately. Now, what a lot of people don't realize about Jeopardy is that they film five episodes a day, mm. um, that they don't do one a day. And so, you know, when they... The Monday show and the Tuesday show and, you know, that the entire week of shows is all filmed on a single day. So I went in actually for the Monday show uh, to start with and ended up, you know, filming five episodes that day, uh, which was so much fun. I can't even tell you. Um, I mean, stressful fun. Sure. You know, but but like high adrenaline kind of exciting fun. Um, And it was it was a great experience. I mean, everybody there is really nice. Um, you know, Alex Trebek was very sweet. I'm really glad that I got to meet him. I mean, you are a person of very high intelligence here, it goes without saying. Uh, so I'm kind of curious how the question parts work. Because as you mentioned, you're filming five episodes in this one day here, right? So how do you know, or do you know about the topics in advance? Or is it all just kind of like, what you know is what you know, and best of luck to you? Uh, it's more the second thing. You you don't know what the topics are going to be in advance. Oh, that is stressful. Um, you know, it, it could be anything. I mean, I I studied a little bit, you know, when I knew that I was going to be on. I studied American history um, because they always, always have some category with American history, the Revolutionary War or presidents or something. So that seemed like the most useful kind of topic to know to know stuff about. And also, it wasn't one of my stronger points. Uh, So I did study a little bit. Well, I mean, mad respect to you for doing that, because that's just like even thinking about it is anxiety inducing. So to do that. (laughs) And then to sit through it for like that many episodes and survive as a champion. I mean, that's, that's pretty stellar. Uh, and if it you don't was, mind telling us, yeah, if you don't mind too, uh, I don't know if you're allowed to say this number. What was your final tally at the end of your run? Uh, I think I made something like 72,000. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And it's funny because when, when the episodes aired, it was actually during the writer's strike. Oh. Um, and so a friend of mine kind of joked that, you know, at that moment I was the highest paid writer in Hollywood because I was the only one getting any money from anywhere. <laughs> It's horrible, but true. I mean, were you actually yes. on uh, working for Voyager at that point, or was that a different show when you were on? Uh, no, it was. I think I was not on a show at that point for, for the Writers Guild strike. 
That's a crazy number to have. Wow, congratulations. Uh, I, I look forward to looking up the YouTube, find more clips of that show, too, if I can find <laughs> Are there clips of that episode on YouTube? Um, th- th- There are a couple of clips of me on Jeopardy on YouTube, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to have to go hunting. I'm going to make sure to put some links in there for folks who want to check this out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Lisa, I want to ask you about a few other shows today, too. And there's another sci-fi series that you worked on, which uh, I believe is tied to Gene Roddenberry, and that's Earth Final Conflict. Yes. And yeah, so the show was based on some of his older work, and I believe it was overseen by Magil at this point, because Gene had passed away many years before mm-hmm. this actually aired. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were credited as executive story editor for many of the episodes, and it, it's a pretty interesting show. It kind of has a little bit of everything. You know, like, it's a contemporary setting, but it's very high sci-fi, and it went five seasons, which, like, I remember seeing it when it first aired syndication here and there. I didn't realize it went five seasons, so wow. Um, but yeah, yeah. I would kind of hear just, like, I mean, it's such a big thing to ask because I know it's like we're trying to condense five seasons into like a little quick question here. But uh, what an interesting show to work on. I mean, it feels like just a very unique chapter in sci-fi TV history. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, the for me, the great part is always, um, you know, working with, with good people. Um, you know, whether the show is good or bad, what really makes a difference day to day is is the quality of, of your staff that you're with. Um, because you spend, you know, hours and hours, you know, in rooms with these people. Um, and I remember that was a really nice staff. It was really, really good creative people on that show. Did any of the folks you worked with over on Star Trek on that writing team, were they part of Earth Final Conflict as well? No, no, okay. it, was, it was a totally different group of people. Okay. So, you know, in terms of like Gene's contribution, because again, we mentioned he was passed at that point. Uh, and, you know, so he can't exactly oversee things, but I know his wife was there. Uh, Magil was mm-hmm. part of the production as well. So when it came time for like stories and getting inspiration, you know, like what exactly are you pulling from the Roddenberry archives? If you're pulling anything to kind of help tell your stories. Uh, Well, when I was there, we weren't really going to the Roddenberry archives very much. Um, They had kind of set the story in motion that had a lot of sort of ongoing threads. You know, it wasn't really, you know, episode of the week or, you know, you know, science mystery of the week. It really was more serialized. Yeah. Uh, which which I think is great, which really kind of gives you a lot more engine, you know, for stories. And I think it was also known for having a pretty high turnover rate with a lot of the actors on the show. Uh, I feel like it's kind of like notorious yeah. for that. <laughs> uh, again, they didn't film anywhere near us. Uh, I think they were in either Canada, maybe. Uh, yeah, usually that's like the 90s sci-fi shows had to be in Canada. That's like a rule, I think someone wrote. I think you're right. Uh, but I, I didn't I didn't get to get into the set and I didn't get to really get to know any of the actors. Um, and again, it was one of those shows that really the, the concept and the story was really the star. You know, it, it didn't have really have like you know a captain, you know, or somebody who was who was like the center of the cast. Um, and so, you know, in telling the stories, there were just a lot of sort of call for new characters and and you know changes, uh, which I think kind of kept it interesting. But that also has to be pretty stressful too, because again, like you, I think by the end of the fifth season, like I think the the first person to, or rather the the only person to keep there the entire series, was like one of the bad guys. Yeah. And so yeah, <laughs> I'm like wondering, like you know, how much does that screw with your plans though? I mean, as much as you're moving episode to episode and, and adapting, I mean, that's got to mess up with long term plans, right? Well, it's tough to make really long term plans again in television. You know, you're dealing with you know production starts on Monday. <laughs> you know, you got to get the script done right now. Yeah. And the executive producers really kind of have an eye on on the long term, you know, what they want the story arc for the whole season to be, you know, but uh, at the level of like executive story editor, I was really much more focused on the script that was right in front of me. Um, and so I didn't I wasn't really consulted on on the long term. 
And just last thing about this, because again, I, I have not watched all five seasons, admittedly, so that's a lot of work for me to do, um, but I, I'm going to get on it <laughs> if I can find <laughs> it again. Uh, but I'd love to know, like, did you have a chance to actually spend any quality time with Magil? Not really. Okay. Um, not really while I was on that show. I mean, when I was on Voyager, uh, I went to a couple parties at her house. She, she threw great Christmas parties. <laughs> um, so I, I spent a little more time with her when I was on Voyager, but not when I was on uh, Final Conflict. And what was she like to hang around? I mean, the Christmas parties sound epic, but I mean, was she like Luxana in real life or how would you describe her? No, I wouldn't say she's, she wasn't quite that over the top, but she, she's definitely very outgoing and very friendly. Um, I mean, you really feel like, you know, she loves throwing parties. She loves having a house full of people. And, and that's really, that's really her element, I think. Uh, you know, for writers such as myself, you know, my element is sitting at home by myself and, and writing, you know, but for Mangel and for, I think a lot of actors, it's really, you know, kind of being out in public. And uh, she was, she was definitely a very, a larger than life kind of person. Now, I'm patting myself on the back here because I actually waited until this episode to talk to you about this. But Lisa, I need to tell you, I love martial law. It is ironically one of my favorite shows. I loved it when it was on TV the first time. I catch it now when it's on uh, Heroes and Icons. And I've spoken to a lot of folks who did the show and they all have interesting stories about it. And I I know that you were a writer and producer for martial Mm law. Um, so, which is again, another big reason I had to have you on this podcast. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, with, with a resume that was primarily sci-fi at that point, how did you get yourself involved in Sammo Hung's big American vehicle? Uh, well, the executive producers were friends of mine, um, uh, Lee Goldberg and William Rapkin. Um, I had worked, I, I actually taken a class from Bill Rapkin at UCLA, a TV writing class, uh, huh. way back in the day. And so they called me to, to be on martial law. Um, and I was, I was lucky because as you said, I, I really just had, you know, sci-fi credits. Um, but you know, they, they were able to kind of see past the, the genre of, of the writing to, to the quality of the writing. And I thought that, you know, they like my characters. And so they thought I'd be good for, uh, for a cop show, I guess. <laughs> um, but again, that was very character focused. I mean, it was really about Samuel Hung and Arsenio Hall. Yeah. Um, and, and their kind of wacky relationship, you know, with the, the fish out of water. And, uh, that, that was, that show was a lot of fun to work on. I've heard of the show before from other folks who, who were actors on it, that, uh, Samo basically had to learn his lines phonetically. So his English was not known for being good or even existing. Um, but you know, That's in the correct. case of the writer's room, yeah. In the case of like what you guys were doing, did Samo have any say, or did they have any interest in what the plots were? Or was he just kind of like, tell me what to do. I want to kick things. Yeah, he he never really consulted with us about about stories that he wanted to see or or developments that he wanted in the character. Uh, I mean, he came from from the Hong Kong martial arts background, and so our job, sort of as writers, was to give them like a very basic story with a lot of setups to do action sequences. Hmm. Um, you know, that was that was really kind of the, the function of, of writing on that show, um, and you know, some fun character stuff, uh, like I said, you know, fish out of water stuff. Um, but he and the, the stunt team were just amazing. I mean, they would take just like, you know, three sentences in the script, you know, and turn it into this massive, you know, five minute action sequence. It, they, they were amazing. I think that's one of the things about writing for TV and film that kind of fascinates me is like, how do you write action? And, and I guess it sounds like in this case for martial law, it was very much like you just said, like, it's very, very minimal. You just let them do their work. But I mean, is that yeah. normally how it is? Uh, no, um, Again, when I was on Voyager, I read a couple of fight sequences. Um, and really what you need to focus on isn't so much the specific moves, like, you know, who punches who in the jaw when, but like who is who's winning and who's getting hurt and, you know, sort of the dynamics of the fight. 
you know, somebody is advancing and somebody's retreating and somebody's, you know, wounded and somebody's, you know, winning. And, and again, character stuff about somebody, you know, walks eyes with somebody who's watching, you know, so you really kind of tell the story of the fight more than you tell the choreography of it. You know, that's what we have stunt coordinators for. So it's all more about the emotion, I guess, if you will, within the scene. That's, that's kind of what you're trying to convey. Yeah, the, the emotion and, and the again, the plot, you know, like who wins the fight, um, you know, and who's who's better at fighting than the other one, that sort of thing. And it's a really fun show. If anybody hasn't watched it yet, like really do yourself a favor and find a way to get it because it's 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 still such nostalgic fun for me to check it out. Uh, is there an episode that you wrote that's like one of your favorites or maybe not even one you wrote, but like, do you have a favorite one that you just think about every now and then? Actually, I think my favorite one that I wrote was Samuel Claus, um, <laughs> you know, because it started with the title. Yeah, you know, which which is kind of an obvious title, but then it was like, all right, how are we going to get Samo in a Santa suit? Um, and so, and we had this elaborate plot where there was a computer chip that was missing, and it was in a, a toy that, like, a talking toy, uh, Armando the the talking armadillo. Uh, I actually have one of those props still, nice. uh, with a removable head. I'm jealous. Um, but the, the whole point of that episode was to get Samo in a Santa suit. <laughs> and we ended up getting a whole bunch of other people in Santa suits and having a big old Santa fight uh, in the shopping mall, um, which, would, which again, was the whole point of the episode. And the stunt people just had the best time with it. And they had set up these, these big, like, cloth, you know, sort of bouncy cloth expanses. And so they would, like you know, almost like trampolines and they would bounce off of this and go tackle the Santa over here. And then they would go fight over. Here. I mean, it was really incredible. I think that was one of our best episodes. I, mean, I feel like it's a show you just couldn't do today either the way it's kind of structured and, and especially having it structured also around Sam Hung specifically and what he wants to accomplish with those fight scenes. But uh, yeah, just what, what a great show. And, you know, it is kind of sad. It only lasted two seasons, yeah. uh, but you guys did get to have a finale, which is, you know, sometimes when you write shows, you don't get that ability to do that. Sometimes it's just the plug yeah. is pulled and it's over. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm curious in the case of martial law, like, did you guys have to rush to the finish line with this finale or, you know, like, was it kind of like you knew that this was the finite end to it at a certain point before, let's say you had to film it, you know, a week or two before? Uh, well, again, the executive producers probably had the heads up um, before the rest of the staff. Um, and, but again, they, they were they were really good showrunners. And so they really kept us all informed about what was going on. Um, and so I think that we knew a couple of episodes ahead of time uh, so we could sort of ramp up to the finale. So if the show had gone on for like season three, season four or five, whatever, did you have any long-term plans for any of the characters or were there any plots that you wanted to do that you didn't get a chance to? Um, I can't really think of stories that I wanted to do. We we had dropped in a few hints about Samo's son, that he had some kind of like like estrangement from his son. And I think actually in Samo Claus, he got a Christmas present that that he thought was from his son. And so we've kind of teased that this relationship might happen. And so I imagine if we had gone on, you know, to season three and beyond, we might have introduced that uh, his son as a character. That would have been really cool. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to not nerd out all day about martial law with you because we have a lot more Star Trek to cover here. So <laughs> I think let's go ahead and jump on a little bit of that right now. And uh, before we get back into Voyager, there is something else you did in the world of Star Trek. There's a few things you did. Uh, I want to start with a video game. So you wrote the storyline for the canceled PC game, Star Trek Voyager Retribution. And that was meant to kind of be like the Voyager follow-up to the DS9 Harbinger game. Uh, So what can you tell me about the story of this game? And I mean, what is it like to to write a video game? That's kind of a different experience, isn't it? 
It is, but I I like trying different things. I mean, I like trying different formats. You know, I've done a bunch of things. I've done comic books. I've done short stories and novels. I mean, I wrote uh, the Borg 4D uh, experience in Vegas. Yeah, we're coming to and, that one next. <laughs> okay. Um, but what I really like is is telling stories in according to different rules, basically. You know, to tell a story in video game format, you know, you have to have sort of different different possibilities, you know, depending on what the, the player does. But you, you want to steer them in a general direction, you know, and so they have to be free to choose from like, you know, four or five different options but those options all have to ultimately lead to, you know, the big climactic fight or, you know, the big, you know, the next level of the game. Um, and so it needs to it needs to feel flexible while actually being very focused. At the time, were you a video gamer at all? Did you play any games? Not really. OK, did you do, did you do any gaming? I should ask then for research. Uh, not really. Uh, again, I, I, I kind of left that part of it to to the experts. Uh, and I sort of just brought in my my you know Voyager character knowledge because um, I, I figured that's what I had that they did not. <laughs> <laughs> now I believe in the game too. You had introduced two new species, which were and you could correct me if I'm saying this wrong because I probably am. But there was the Gudge and the Antiquette, I believe they were. That sounds right. Sounds right. Okay, if you, you're the ones who made them up, so if if, uh, if you're saying it's good, I'll go with it. But uh, <laughs> what do you remember about them? What were those aliens supposed to be like? You know, I, I'm sorry, I don't really remember. That was such a long time ago, and, and it didn't go forward. Yeah, yeah. I was actually wondering if you knew any, or had any insight about, like, the cancellation, why it didn't go forward. I have no idea. Mm. I, I was just sort of brought in as a consultant, so they didn't really fill me in on the details. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate it never got off the ground, because I really would have liked to see what they did with it, because that DS9 game was pretty interesting, so I mm-hmm. imagine for Voyager, it must be kind of a similar fun experience. yeah. But we will never know unless someone manages to dig up a ROM somewhere. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Lisa, you mentioned it, so now I got to ask you: Star Trek Experience Borg Invasion. Uh, and if anybody wants to watch it, there actually is like a clip of that on YouTube. There's like 18 minutes of that, which is really fun to watch. Uh, so for folks who don't know, let's just start at the beginning here. What is the Star Trek Borg Invasion? Well, it's it's basically uh, well, they called it a 4D experience because it was a 3D film with physical. Um, Sort of additions. I mean, there was, you know, the, the seat moved and you got like wind in your face. And so it was it was like the California Adventure um, ride, uh, California Dreaming and like a Bug's Life. Um, and there, there were a couple of rides that were like that. And like the Back to the Future ride, Universal is kind of like that. Um, and so it was meant to be very immersive. It definitely is. I mean, there's like parts where you're being chased around by the Borg uh, on board a, sh- a ship. Uh, yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty unique. I recommend folks watch it because it's, man, I wish I got to experience it myself. But, you know, essentially what you are writing is interactive theater. And yes. so, you know, for you to kind of, you know, go back to the world of writing plays again, I mean, what is that like for you? Is, it, is there any difference to what you do with TV versus this particular unique experience? Well, it was a little different. Um I mean, fortunately, I got to write for for like the doctor. He was he was in you know sort of the pre yep. the pre show, uh, and that's always fun. I, I loved writing for the doctor. He had such such a great voice, um, so that was fun. And then getting to write the Borg was just a blast, um, you know, and trying to imagine what it was like inside the Borg ship and what different kinds of drones there would be. And I remember coming up with avian drones, you know, that would be based on like a species that could fly that was simulated by the Borg and now the Borg can fly. Um, and getting to write for the Borg Queen 
was great fun, you know, and what we had to keep in mind was what, what physically would be happening to the audience at the same time. Yeah. You know, there's this great moment where the Borg queen basically shoots tentacles out of her fingertips. And then um, in the back of the seat, something would poke the audience in the back. Hmm. And so if you, if you watch the audience, like, you know, watching this, they all go, ah, at the same time. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's because they're getting poked in the back. Um, and so setting up kind of keeping track of what their physical experience was like and setting that up was, was part of the fun. I can actually vividly remember still doing that Bugs Life uh, 4D thing at Disney and the part where like the bugs start moving around under your feet and on your butt. Yep. That, that yep. haunts me to this day. Uh, yep. So well, imagine that, but you're being assimilated by the board. I feel like that's probably a little bit better than the bugs crawl over me. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. But, you know, since you mentioned there is this, this 4D experience that goes with it, are you as the writer dictating any of that? Or are they saying, hey, here's some different tools we have that you can play with. Uh, find a way to use them. It, it was that they, they said, here are the effects that we can do. We'd, we'd like to use this and that. Uh, you know, we'd like to use, again, you know, poking and, and you know, something in, in the back of the chair. Um, and that just seemed like it really went, you know, naturally with, you know, the, the queen shooting at her, her fingertips at the, at the audience. So it was, it was very interactive. You know, they would tell me what they could do. And I'd ask them, you know, well, can you do this also? And, you know, yes or no. Uh, so that that was a lot of fun. You know, what's kind of cool too is that you're basically writing with us in mind, like you know, folks mm-hmm. who go to this ride, like we are character in the world, and you know, things are interacting with us and around us. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, again, think of that as a way to write too. How do you approach that? Because now there's like this other character who you don't even know how they're going to react necessarily to things, uh, and you have to kind of lead them around, hold their hand a little bit into this world. So how do you write something like that? Um. Well, fortunately, I mean, the audience was, was basically seated and, and, and they were still. Um, and so there was the interaction was more like us sort of doing things to them rather than them choosing, like, do I go in this room or do I go in that room? Or even with like the video game, you know, do I do I follow this path or do I follow this path? I mean, the audience was basically in our hands. Um, and so we could we could torture them however we liked. You take such joy in saying that, too. That's the frightening part. <laughs> <laughs> I remember actually having discussions about how badly can we scare the audience before we end up giving somebody a heart attack, <laughs> you know, and again, you know, when we're, are we going to actually, you know, scare somebody too much? Um, so we were, we were aware of that. I mean, I, I'm legit scared of that thing. Like watching it. I think if I was a little kid and I went to that, I'd be like crying my pants off and just like <laughs> man, let out. That's pretty scary. Uh, like there's literally, you know, Starfleet people get pulled up in that live action part, if you will. Um, yeah, it's intense. So, yeah. uh, you know, on that note too, was there anything left on the cutting room floor that you had designed or written for to be part of this experience that didn't get used or you had to adjust? Not that I can think of. Uh, I mean, again, there was, there was a lot of pre-planning. Uh, I mean, that was, that was really necessary. You know, we, we couldn't, they couldn't really afford to do visual effects and do things that they would then get cut. Mm. Uh, so it was really, you know, we had to n- nail down the outline. Now, was it always going to be the Borg or was there possibilities of it being like Klingons or maybe a bunch of other aliens or a completely different concept altogether? No, but by the time it came to me, it was it was definitely the Borg. Okay. now, did you have a chance to actually go and experience that yourself in person? Oh, yes. Yeah. How did you like it? I went on the experience. I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I never got a chance to attend, as I mentioned. So I never got to visit Quarks or anything like that. Um, But I am really into hearing stories about this place. And uh, I mean, so, yeah, if you wouldn't mind actually just tell us, you know, going to Vegas what was that whole Star Trek experience like in Vegas? It just looked like such a blast. 
It was. I mean, it was really kind of surreal, um, you know, because because it was a universe that I was involved in. Um, you know, they had this basically when you were waiting in line for the rides, they had basically this museum, mm. you know, where they had you know all these props and and stuff like that from the series and and photos and a couple of the props were from episodes that I had written. And so it was it was really just surreal to kind of you know walk through this museum and and say, oh yeah, I remember that. And oh yeah, how about that one? Uh, you know, to go on on the main, you know, Star Trek experience, which was great fun. Uh, you know, on the shuttlecraft and you know, crashing into Vegas, and then also doing the Borg 4D and then going to Quarks afterwards. It, it was really immersive and it was really, it really was even better than standing on the sets because it was 360. You know, there was nothing that like broke the illusion, you know, that you were actually in Quarks. You know, you couldn't turn and see the camera guy over there or, you know, the boom guy holding the microphone. <laughs> you know, it was, everything was quarks. It was great fun. I love the names for those things. Like, I, I'm going to one day buy myself one of the menus off eBay if I can. Uh, it looks, like, so cool. Uh, such yeah. a cool place to go to. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like this is one of those things today that, like, I wish was still around. Sadly, it's not. Do you think this is the kind of place they could revive in, like, 2020s and, and make it successful? I don't know. Uh I think there's there's so much Star Trek out there right now in different formats that I think it would be tough to figure out which which universe. You know, is it going to be Strange New Worlds? Is it going to be Prodigy? Is it going to be Lower Decks? Um, you know, I think you would have to you have to choose choose your Star Trek basically and uh, and what to feature. And I think that might be kind of tricky. All right, so Lisa, let's go back to some Voyager episodes now. we got a bunch more to talk about. I just binged a whole bunch of them to refresh my memory also. And uh, we're going to start with Favorite Son. That's where we left off last time. Favorite Son, which is a Harry Kim-centric episode. And uh, by the way, one of the episodes that we actually did way, way in the past on this podcast, uh, we interviewed Deborah May, who was one of the guest stars in that one. So oh, anybody listening, go ahead, check that one out. Uh, so I believe this episode has a pretty deep story attached to it, because from what I read, like the initial script was a completely different concept where Harry was going to actually be another alien species. So talk to me about what happened here and what the plans would have been moving forward. Well, we never actually got as far as the script with that idea, but I mean, the initial the initial pitch was that Harry discovers that he is in fact a Delta Quadrant alien and discovers his family, you know, on this planet and then has to decide, is he going to stay with them or is he going to go, you know, with Voyager to go back to Earth, you know, which he had almost considered his home. That was the original concept, um, which I liked. I mean, I thought that, that was a really good choice for Harry, and and I thought that character had not really gotten enough focus, and so it was I, I was looking forward to doing that that version of it. Uh, but then the notes came down from the studio that they didn't want you know Harry hanging out with Grandma, uh, <laughs> that they wanted hot babes. Um, so you know, throw throw more hot babes in there. So. <laughs> So we did. Uh, we made it basically the planet of, of women um, and had them all trying to seduce him. And, you know, for, for evil, nefarious purposes, of course. Um, but that was that was sort of the dictate from the studio was was to make that change. Because, of course, any woman that takes interest in Harry must be trying to kill him or something. It seems to just be the way it is. Yeah, it's it, it's funny because. On the one hand, I know that, that Garrett Wong has talked to, about how he likes that episode yeah. because his character is, you know, an, an Asian American who is the object of, of desire, you know, and you don't really see that an awful lot on television. 
Yeah. Um, and so just the, the visual of like, you know, all these women pawing him, <laughs> you know, is is kind of a positive image, which which I get. And I, I, I I'm glad that that's a positive image. But then, yeah, that it turns out to be that, no, they're actually not interested in him. They just basically want to kill him, you know, and then suck out all his DNA, uh, I think, kind of kind of defeats the purpose. (laughs) I mean, of all the episodes that you did, this is definitely the most hairy episode. And there's frankly not a lot of Harry Kim episodes. Uh, So, you know, I'd love to kind of hear what you wish you could have done with the character, maybe. Again, it would have been nice to give him something a little more distinctive. Um, I mean... Besides that the was sort of the idea behind making him an actual alien. Yeah. Because he was he was the everyman. You know, he was basically the point of view character for the audience because this was his first mission. And so it was like if, if you know, the audience was in Starfleet, he was, this is kind of how they would experience things. And that's that's fun, but it only takes you so far. You know, the characters that we could really write story that that basically suggested stories were like, you know, a Klingon or a Vulcan or a holographic doctor, um, you know, or the captain or a former board, you know, that, that their had their identities made them interesting. And I think with Harry, we never quite hooked into what made him distinct and what made him interesting, you know, beyond, again, being sort of the audience surrogate. Yeah, I always felt like the character of Harry Kim was just literally defined by the fact that he is an ensign and forever an ensign. That was basically it. Like, I think to me, the only other Harry Kim episode that really stands out, besides the fun of Fairhaven, uh, is that one where it's like a time leap forward where Harry is like in the future, which uh, yeah, diff- different episode. But yeah, no, it, it's it has kind of bugged me that you know he he had a lot of potential and it was just never really fleshed out. Yeah, we we never really found his his character hook. Now, I believe uh, Jerry Taylor was actually quoted about this episode, saying it was one of the weaker ones of this season. Uh, so, yeah. you know, if you had had your way, what would you have done to improve it now, looking back on it, you know, this many years later? Well, again, I would have stuck with the, the original story yeah. <laughs> um, and made it more of an, of an emotional episode for, for Harry, you know, in which he genuinely had to choose between his, his you know, biological family here in the Delta Quadrant or his chosen family on Voyager. And I think that would have been interesting and, again, could have given us some insight into that character um, more than just, you know, let's throw some women at him. Which, again, Garrett didn't mind, but who wouldn't? Which I'm sure Garrett did not mind. (laughs) Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Nego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter Untold10 at checkout 
for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using Untold 10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together. How they got that great sound quality. What gear they use. How much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades, speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required. So let's jump ahead now over to Displaced. Uh, hmm. So what was the prompt for this one? This is a pretty unique episode also, but it has some kind of roots, I feel like, in uh, original Trek too. Yeah, this one kind of came from the sci-fi premise of, you know, what if basically we were, you know, our crew was disappearing one by one and being replaced by aliens one by one, you know, and it was kind of inexplicable that this was happening. Yeah. And that's where it started from. And which is a really cool hook, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, part of the idea was that this had to be a bottle show, Hmm. um, which meant that it had to be totally understanding sets and couldn't have a lot of, um, uh, well, no, we had displaced it. We had we had one one guest set basically that uh, that already existed, but um, it, it basically had to be inexpensive, and so it had to sort of rest on this on this high concept instead. And we went through, you know, at what point do we, you know, when, when we're getting replaced, you know, at what point do we start to suspect that something's wrong? Do we cooperate with these aliens? What if they say they have no idea what's going on? And it it sort of became like a paranoia almost, you know, like a, uh, an invasion of the body snatchers kind of feeling that, you know, are we being kidnapped or not? Um, and then of course it ends up that we, that we are, you know, and that our ship is being stolen out from under us. I feel like it's a very ambitious episode too, because you're doing a lot of things in this episode here. Like you mentioned, we have this invasion angle here. We have people being snatched away. We have what happens once they get on the planet. Meanwhile, then we have, uh, I guess I'll lead to my next question here. We have now Chakotay who becomes John McClane, and his portion of the episode kind of turns into like a little bit of Starship Mind, a little bit of Die Hard. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Was, was that your intention? 
Yeah, it was. I mean, Chakotay is another one of those characters that we we didn't serve as well as we could have, I think. Um, and so it was it was fun to kind of let him be the action guy, uh, you know, for for an episode. I mean, I enjoyed watching him run around like that. It was like, and it felt like he was such almost like you know not a different episode. It didn't feel disjointed. It was just like, wow, here he is. He's finally getting a chance to like kick some butt again, which is mm-hmm. a lot of fun to watch him do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. So I read that this episode kind of started out a little bit differently from the way you were approaching other episodes and that, you know, we talked to you last episode about how a lot of these were character studies. Mm-hmm. This time around, this was more of an ensemble episode. Mm-hmm. So uh, talk to us about that and what was going to be different here in terms of what you had to do to make this episode come together. Well, it sort of depends on what, what generates the story in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, some stories come from, you know, the light, like uh, Innocence, you know, with Tuvok and the children. That was, you know, the, the inspiration for that came from Tuvok's character. We wanted to explore what, what, what he was like as a father. And so that's kind of, that was the genesis of that episode. With Displaced, the genesis of the episode was the concept. You know, and so we kind of approached it, you know, from, from a plot point of view. And the characters were really defined by their, their function in the plot. You know, more than what do we learn about this character and what deep inner you know struggles do they go through? You know, we didn't really have that so much in, in this episode. I feel like this answer kind of is a great gateway here for me to kind of ask you a big picture question about writing. Uh, and so this is going to be the Lisa Klink Masterclass right now here. So, you know, we're talking, let's talk about structure a little bit here and how you actually do what you do. So, you know, this, again, this episode, I feel like it's a very ambitious one. So there's a lot going on here, a lot of different moving pieces that you put together really beautifully. So how does that look for you on paper? Like when you're starting here, I guess I kind of want to ask you, what is the beginning of your thought process? Once you come to the table with your idea locked in, how do you begin to essentially sketch things out? And then how does it look when you're putting them on paper? What is that process like? Well, uh, again, in television, it's, it's collaborative. You know, I mean, I, w- I would pitch, you know, the idea of, you know, we're being replaced and we're getting captured and all that sort of thing. And, you know, I would take, you know, basically like a three or four sentence concept. And then we would take that to the writer's room. Um, and then everybody would sort of throw in their ideas as well. And then, you know, what happens in the teaser? What happens in scene one of, you know, of act one? Um, and so figuring out the details of how it works Again, it's very collaborative. You know, uh, what what does Chakotay do to to fight against the aliens? And when we're on the planet, what do we discover? You know, and what takes us to the next phase? And how do we ultimately escape? Um, and that process is just a lot of fun. Um, I mean, I, I recently wrote something that that was not collaborative. That was just me, and I I kind of copied the idea of a story room, and then I had like post it notes up on the wall. And I would like to sort of change them around because it was a, a, a plot heavy murder mystery. And so I'd also have like, you know, uh, post-its for the clues and figure, OK, this clue leads us to this guy. And then this clue leads us to that suspect and clears this other guy. Um, and it felt very similar uh, to the way it did in the story room where we'd have somebody at the whiteboard writing down, you know, all of these, you know, plot beats um, that were necessary to kind of build to the climax. Now, generally speaking, I mean, do you guys essentially start with the premise and the ending and then work your way kind of backwards? Or, or how does that actually work when you want to structure this thing? We don't usually start with the ending. Okay. Um, again, we start with kind of what what is the, the through line? You know, is it a mystery that needs to be solved? You know, is it like a science mystery? Is it, you know, a, a battle that needs to be won? Or is it like a character revelation that needs to come out uh, or a decision that needs to be made. 
you kind of figure out what is what is the the engine for the story. Uh, and Michael Pillar would always ask us, you know, what is the story about? You know, not just what happens, but what is what is the heart of it? Is it about a person? Is it about an idea? Is it about you know a journey? And so once you kind of have that in mind, it leads you through how does each beat of the story serve that main function? You know, again, if it's a mystery, what clues do we need to plant all the way through? If it's a character piece, you know, like, you know, Tubok has to learn how to deal with these kids and ultimately has to bond with them. What, what beats happen along the way to make that happen? Um, and the endings, sometimes we know it and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we kind of find it once, once we get there. I think I feel like endings are one of the trickiest parts of anything because it's like, you know, you might have had this great idea. And especially when you're doing character studies, it's like you're probably so focused on the character. Getting a really great ending can be a challenge or a struggle sometimes just to find something that kind of fits or ties everything up nicely with a bow. Yeah, it, and especially because we did uh, we did standalone episodes but for the most part. Yeah. And so everything did need to get tied up with a bow at the end. You know, we, we didn't want to have some unfinished business to carry over to the next episode. Uh, and so we really had to resolve everything at the end of every episode. But Voyager was kind of nice in that it got to be the best of both worlds in a lot of ways. You know, like DS9 was very much all about all seven seasons. TNG was about every single episode one at a time. Voyager got to have a little bit of both of those things here. So, uh, you know, I guess it's looking at Voyager as a whole, since, you know, you guys were a team, worked together in so many episodes. Uh, for you guys, how do you get to balance having something that carries over to the next episode and the next season and again and again versus... Here's what's happening right now. We really wanted to focus more on what's happening right now. Okay. Um, on what what is the story that has a beginning, middle, and end that all that all happens in, right now. Um, and then we knew that we have you know some overarching plot of we were trying to get home, and so maybe two or three times a season we would have a story that would address that big arc. You know, maybe we're going to find a wormhole, or we're going to find some new technology that could possibly get us closer to home. Um, we didn't do very many character arcs. I mean, the only one that I can really think of is, is Tom and Bellana's relationship. Um, you know, that, that did carry over from one episode to the next and had, had a longer arc that we had to sort of consider how to address. You know, once we kind of got them together during the um, episodes, we had to figure, even if it was about something totally different, you know, like in, like in Displaced, you know, that was obviously it was, had nothing to do with you know, their relationship. But when those characters were together, it would obviously affect how they reacted with each other. And so it really affected the execution of the scene more than it did affect the plot. All right, so let's jump into another episode right now. Let's talk about Revulsion. This mm. one uh, is such a creepy one. Whenever I see it on TV, I usually turn the channel. I get the courage <laughs> to go back to watch it, but like, wow. Uh, so this is like literally a horror film in Star Trek. Uh, you know, I heard that uh, the director, Kenneth Biller, he did like a lot of homages in this episode to a lot of other horror films, a lot of Hitchcock stuff. When you were yeah. writing this one, did you have any homages in the back of your head for it? Uh, well, Hitchcock was obviously in, in my head. Um, you know, Psycho was, you know, an, an obvious inspiration because it was the character that seemed very nice and, and harmless on the surface. But once you kind of got past that, you get to the, you know, the psychotic underneath. Um so there was there was a lot of that. Um, and yeah, it was essentially a horror movie, you know, on, on in space. But for me, the heart of it, again, was the doctor, because he met another hologram, which he never did. You know, he never got to meet sort of others of his kind. And so the 
the inspiration for the episode was what would happen if he did meet this other hologram? And would he be inspired by him? Would he bond with him? You know, what, what would that relationship be like? Would he try to save him? Would he be saved by him? You know, and so when we kind of structured it so that this, you know, this other hologram was, was asking for help and the doctor would be extra motivated to go and help him because it was a fellow hologram. So that for me was really what the story was about. Yeah, I feel like the doctor has such bad luck when it comes to holograms. I mean, between this episode, <laughs> uh, the one real life with his hollow family, uh, even one episode we're going to talk about a little bit later on, it seems like he was never destined to have like good hologram buddies for the most part. Uh, well, no, not really. Uh, yeah. he's, he's, he definitely did better with uh, flesh and blood friends. Surprisingly enough, yeah, right? <laughs> so what's kind of fun also about this episode, too, besides the horror stuff, which, again, is really great stuff, um, this is also the first episode, I believe, that you're getting to write for Seven, right? I think chronologically this is well the first be. time. Uh, yeah, that could be. And I think this one's known for uh, very notably for the fact that Seven has her very awkward line of propositioning Harry Kim for sex. Yes. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about Seven and Nine here. So this is, you know... Pretty sure your very first time writing her, because I just watched them also. Pretty sure this is. Um, what did you think of Seven when you got her in your hands to start playing with? And uh, why did you decide to make this more of a humorous scene? And, and why was there humor added to her character at this point? Well, I think we needed some humor to balance out the, the heavy, you know, again, you know, more horror aspects of, of the main plot. Yeah. But with Seven, it, it was such a great opportunity because she wasn't starkly. And she wasn't entirely human, <laughs> you know. And so she was the one that could, that could say the things that were rude or inappropriate and, you know, could be obnoxious and could be confrontational. And that was a real breath of fresh air because most of the time, you know, we had our Starfleet people who were all very evolved and were all very civilized and cooperated with each other and worked together to find solutions. And so to throw in kind of a, a rogue element like Seven was great. Because she could clash with people, um, you know, very much with Janeway. Uh, you know, I played with that a lot. And that was a really satisfying relationship. Um, but then, again, we could also see, like, you know, her and Harry, you know, her kind of trying to grasp the subtleties of human relationships and just completely missing it, um, which which was just fun. I mean, this is Seven's first season also. So there is a lot of character building going on here. So, you know, I'm curious if you guys had any ideas of what you were going to do with her past this season. I mean, obviously she's there, she's part of the cast, but like in terms of developing her character, I mean, what were you guys thinking at this point? Well, I know that the general idea was that she was going to reclaim her humanity um, and that she would, she would try to transition from being, you know, totally bored to ultimately becoming, you know, a human being again and, and embracing that. Uh, and so that was sort of the overall arc. Um, and again, we kind of, had an idea that we were going to run for seven seasons just because, you know, next generation deep space nine had. And so that was kind of the plan with seven. Um, as far as I understood was that, you know, in episode in, in seasons four, five, six, and seven, we were going to complete that arc. Um, but you know, what, like with any other characters, you kind of see what works as, as you try it. You know, we, when we tried her relationship with Janeway, those sparks really worked very well. And so we wrote toward that more. We included more of that relationship. Um, and so, you know, what you, you see what's working and, and which actors really have chemistry with each other. And then you play it, play to that. Yeah, I mean, I know her chemistry with uh, the doctor was pretty amazing here, but uh, I'd love to get your hot take on this one here. I know you weren't writing uh, over with the team, I think at this point, but Chakotay, seven of nine and their relationship. What, what did you think about that? 
I thought it was a little forced, quite honestly. I I did not quite buy it. It mm-hmm. seemed like they were they were paired up sort of at random. I would not disagree with you, Lisa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump over to another one right now. Let's talk about scientific method. And we did mention mm-hmm. some character development earlier in this episode here. Uh, and we were talking about Tom and Balana. So, mm-hmm. you know, at this stage here, did you guys have an end goal in mind with these characters? Because I believe at this point we've already had Dave Honor. So they, these two have smooched. They know that they have affection for each other. So you mentioned already, you know, you know, you have extra seasons to play with, but did you know that, you know, did you guys have a plan in mind for them at this point? Or was it just kind of like, let's see how this chemistry continues to go? It was, let's see how it goes. Um, I think that, yeah, you know, let's, let's see in each episode, you know, do we advance the story at all? Um, you know, their story, do we, do we break them up? Do we get them back together? Um, I think that just the, the chemistry between them worked really well. And so we wanted to keep that relationship going forward. We didn't want to break them up and, and have them be, you know, hostile to each other. I read also, you know, this is another one of those episodes that like Jerry Taylor had. So it was kind of a weird one. Maybe she wasn't quite so sure about this one. Uh, like, do you feel that you guys accomplished what you wanted to do with the story of this one? Because it is, again, it's, it's kind of a horror story, but it's not nearly in like the same kind of horror level as Revulsion was. Right. Well, again, this was, uh, this was like a, a concept, you know, a sci-fi concept show. And it was also a bottle show. Um, in that we never left the ship. We didn't have any guest stars. It was, it was, it basically was inexpensive. And so, you know, if you could come up with a good high concept for a bottle show, you that was golden because we always, always needed those. Um, and so the idea that we were being experimented upon, you know, it, it kind of came from, you know, the sort of the, the legends of people who have been abducted by aliens, you know, from Earth and been experimented on and then returned. You know, we thought about, well, what if it was our crew? That was that was being experimented on, and, and they really were, you know, by these invisible aliens who were all around them, and uh, you know what what would they do to us, and why? Um, and the, the scene that I really like is the one where uh, the alien is in in the brig and talking to Janeway about you know the, the scientific data that we're collecting here is going to save lives. You know, you guys are really you know, I know it seems cruel, but you know it it was kind of the same argument for, for animal testing, you know, that it may seem cruel, but, you know, ultimately we're getting these, these life-saving medications out of it. And so what, are, what is the morality of that? And was that kind of like the core of the subtext that you wanted to talk about in this episode? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a really neat one though, too. Cause the idea of that invisible threat, especially like that's just such a creepy, creepy thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think one of my other favorite scenes is when uh, seven is in the elevator and she, she can, at this point, she can see them and she sees one of them that's like, you know, coming at her eye with a needle, you know, and she has to stand there and not flinch and not realize, you know, not give away that she knows that he's there. Um, and I, I thought that that sort of again encapsulated the, the threat uh, really well. Yeah, I love hate that scene, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, also, I, I thought Jerry Ryan did, did it really well. Oh, yeah, no, she was great. I mean, and this kind of leads me to another kind of overall uh, Voyager question here. So, you know, I feel like as the seasons went on, especially, uh, you know, seven and nine very much started to dominate a lot of the shows and very much, you know, she was like the hero of a lot of them. You know, I know people complain about Wesley Crusher and TNG as like the Mary Sue and that kind of thing. But once seven kind of showed up, like the world kind of started to revolve around her a lot. And she became the person that kind of solved so many problems. Yeah. Uh, so what was your take on that? I mean, is that something you guys were aware of or noticed? Um, did it just kind of happen organically with the team? It kind of happened organically. Um, again, we had this this character who had all this Borg knowledge and it was really hard not to, not to make use of that, (laughs) you know, because the crew naturally they would, 
you know, we would ask her and, and we would make use of her abilities. And I thought that the character was successful enough that, that we wanted to give her stories. Um, you know, again, that she just had a different attitude and she was, you know, abrasive and sarcastic. And that made her a more interesting character than somebody who was, who was, you know, just polite. <laughs> and so we, I think we tended to kind of funnel more stories her way. Um, and also the actress did such a good job with it um, that she it just kind of just kind of ended up going that way. So let's talk about another really, really great episode here. Uh, this is another favorite of mine, Message in a Bottle. This oh, is yeah. most notably known as the Andy Dick episode. Uh, yep. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, by the way, just right off the bat here, this role was pretty much perfect for Andy Dick. Uh, was he like known to be a part of it before you guys wrote it? Was he the person intended to be this? Or was that even a thought in anybody's heads at, that, at the point of when you guys were writing? Uh, when I wrote the first draft, we did not know who was going to be in it. Okay. Um, and we're, it was a little bit of a struggle trying to figure out what, what kind of other hologram character would, would clash with the doctor in the most interesting way. And then, then once we realized that, that we had cast Andy Dick, we rewrote the script to capitalize on, on him, you know, and, and his abilities and, and really what would, what would make him distinct which was to be even more neurotic than the doctor, uh, which I thought was great fun. Yeah, it's like he found the two most smug holograms in the universe and <laughs> in one room. Yeah, pretty much. He did, he just out doctored the doctor. <laughs> now, did you have any inspiration for like how these two are going to be interacting? I mean, was this meant to be like kind of a Laurel and Hardy relationship, or was there any other like comedy duos you were thinking of, or anyone else completely out of left field that you were considering to uh, use as inspirations for how these two are going to work together? I didn't have a specific inspiration for it, except again, just what would, what would set off the doctor the most, <laughs> you know, what would, what would annoy him or what would provoke him uh, the most. Uh, that was really the inspiration for, for the uh, EMH Mark II. I mean, if anybody's going to provoke anyone, that's Andy Dick. So yeah, yep. mission accomplished yep. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that was some good casting. I, 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 I was not part of that. I mean, that was, it was over my head, but uh, I thought that was really well done. Now, I read that Robert Ricardo got involved in a little bit of the writing here and there, uh, and that he got to like, write some of his lines maybe for certain things. Do you remember any of that? Uh, I never dealt with him directly about rewriting his part. Um, I'm sure that he came to the other writers and producers. Um, you know, a, a lot of the actors did. You know, they would. We had a very strict policy that they could not ad lib on the set, um, that any kind of changes in dialogue had to be run by the writer and producer first. Um, and so some of the actors took advantage of that and, and I mean, in, in a good way in that, I mean, they would contact us and say, I had this idea and how about if we do this instead? Um, but really the ultimate decision was always, uh, the writer and the exec producer. I'm also curious, you know, we've been talking about a lot of different Star Trek things and everybody knows the term techno babble. If you don't know what that is, uh, that's all the crazy jargon they use for talking about reversing the polarity and all that kind of stuff. So is there like a Bible or a guide that you guys have on staff to write this techno babble? Like, how do you guys make sure you're not confusing your protons with your photons? Well, we do have a science advisor. Um, okay. At the time, it was Andre Bormanis, um, who was an actual astrophysicist. <laughs> and so um, he would always read through our scripts uh, to make sure that we weren't saying something that was physically impossible, you know, or, or, or scientifically implausible. Uh, and sometimes we would come to him from the beginning and say, we need this kind of stellar phenomenon what what would be close? What would be plausible enough? Um, and so that was 
that was kind of the standard that we that we had. It needs it just needs to be plausible enough, you know, that, that it's not going to take the audience out of it and go, oh, come on. <laughs> you know, anything that, that would stop short of that, that we that would be believable, you know, we, we could run with. I mean, I'm not one of those folks that like understands any of that techno babble. I know there's a lot of folks out there who do very, very passionately, but uh, you know, it is kind of interesting note to just think about the fact that like so many of these episodes and a lot of their conclusions, the scientific conclusions, are very much dictated by someone who's not a TV writer, but an actual scientist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just like kind of mind blowing for me right there to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this episode uh, also introduces the Herosian for the first time, or at least it kind of teases them a little bit here. Right. So, you know, did you guys have any, well, I guess I should pass this up here. I was going to ask if you guys had any plans. That's what I've been asking all along here. But uh, the inception of the Herosian, what were these guys meant to be? Where did the idea come from? And yeah, what were the plans going to be for them? Well, the idea was that they they were hunters, um, and you know, anytime we were considering you know conceiving of an alien race, I mean, the trick is always what what motivates them. You know, are they after money? You know, like like the Ferengi. You know, are they after resources? Are they after knowledge? You know, are they are they after body parts like the Vidians were? Um, and in this case, they were hunters. Um, you know, kind of like Predator. Uh, you know, the the Schwarzenegger movie. Uh, and that's, I think, sort of what we had in mind is that when we encountered them, they wouldn't be at all interested in diplomacy because they wouldn't see us as equals. They would see us as prey. And that was a situation that we hadn't really been in with, you know, been been in, involved with another alien race like that before. Uh, so that seemed like kind of an, an interesting take on it. Yeah, it was like my first thought when I first saw them. I feel like it's a lot of our initial thoughts when we see the erosion is like, hey, it's the predator. He just showed up finally. Um, <laughs> So, you know, but on that topic of threatening aliens, uh, you know, this is my nerdy little moment on the soapbox here. But, you know, I, I always felt like over time that Voyager really kind of weakened the Borg. And, you know, in case in point, we're bringing in the Herosians who are like this giant threat. We have species 847. Uh, yeah, you know, you know the species. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, you know, and, and basically, like, the Borg were used to make other aliens look more threatening, which in turn kind of weakened them. And, you yeah. know, like... There's stories like drone and survival instinct that very also humanize these these species, humanize the Borg, uh, which again, you know, as as hard as it is to say, it does kind of weaken them as a galaxy level threat. Yeah. So, you know, was there always kind of like the intent to uh, use the Borg in this way, and like, was the goal to kind of maybe actually make them good guys? Not good guys, um, but I think that I mean, our our instinct is always to make to make races and characters three-dimensional no, nothing is all just sheer evil you know you got to think there's there's got to be more to them than that you know just to just to because in reality there's always more to somebody than that and so that that just makes it more interesting and so kind of trying to find like you know the weak spots and the chinks in the armor um you know especially with somebody like the board because we had seven of nine um because she connected us with them in a way that that really kind of inspired more stories about them to come to Voyager. And and I, I agree with you that I mean sort of the better we got to know them, the less of an epic threat they were. And and that was kind of unfortunate because I mean they were at one point, you know, the biggest bad that we had ever run into. Um, but again, I think just the more you learn about them, you know, the more we're gonna find their weaknesses, and that's just inevitable. I mean, these days we now have over in Picard the kinder, gentler Borg Queen played by Alison Pill. Yes. Uh, you know, back in the Voyager times, was there any discussion or any ideas tossed around to be like, hey, seventh season, uh, Voyager makes it back, and also now the Borg are our allies. They're part of the Federation. 
I, I don't think there was ever any talk about them becoming allies or, or good guys in any way. I mean, they were always going to be, you know, because again, their motive was to assimilate. And that's something that was that the Federation was never going to be okay with. So Lisa, let's move on to retrospect, which is an episode you share the credit with Brian Fuller. Uh, so, you know, this is one I got a lot of questions about. Uh, so I read that the original writing of prompt was meant to be a little bit different also, not, not too far fetched, but, uh, you know, pretty different in terms of what the initial concept was. Uh, do you remember what the, the initial idea was for this episode? I do. Um, it was essentially the phenomenon of recovered memory. Um, because at the time, we were, uh, that was about the time uh, we were dealing with like the McMartin school case in which these children had basically been induced to remember all these horrible things like torture and satanic rituals and all that kind of thing, none of which was true. And I remember there was also a, a psychologist named Elizabeth Loftus who had come out uh, with studies about how easy it was to get people to remember things that had never happened. You know, to to talk to college students about, you know, an incident in their childhood when they got lost in the mall. And did they remember that? And all of the students came around to, oh, yeah, I do remember that. And in fact, it never happened. So that that memory phenomenon was what inspired retrospect it was we tried to figure out what would what would happen with one of our characters if they were induced to remember something that had not happened. And that was that's what the focus was meant to be. Like I had read on a memory alpha that like an earlier draft was in fact that these there were aliens that did do some operations on seven, uh, and so like w- would that have been like kind of the same concept or what was it at that point if you remember that? Um, I don't remember going through that phase um, okay. in in which in which the memories were actually true. I, I think they were always meant to be false memories. Okay. So, you know, I think the episode itself, too, the subject matter is one we could heavily scrutinize today. And I mean, I'd like to do that right now with you because uh, it, it has not aged especially well. <laughs> you took the words uh, right out of my mouth. Respect, uh, no pun intended. Um, it, it shouldn't have been as, as sexual as it was. Hmm. You know, I mean, it was obviously an allegory for rape. The fact that that it turns out not to have happened and that we should not have believed Seven when she said that she was assaulted that has not aged very well, um, and and I, I regret that that it is viewed differently now than, than our intention was. Yeah, I think that, and even some of the other little nuances in this episode here, like uh, you know, like Seven just becoming very hysterical over what's happening in the situation too, and not being believed, and the Doctor kind of like hyping her up over it more and more. Uh, it, it's definitely a little bit rough to watch by today's standards. Definitely would not fly, um, and you know, I, I think even for them, the topic could definitely been handled in a more sensitive way. So. You know, looking back on things in retrospect, another pun there, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, if you could do things differently today, you could rewrite this episode today. What would you do to make it different? I think I would not have it be a woman. Um, I think I would have it be a different character um, and have maybe the the memory itself be something different. Again, something that did that did not feel like a sexual assault. and. Because again, the the intent was that the doctor in particular was kind of making making more of the memory than than was really there, you know, because he basically noticed, you know, Seven having this weird reaction to a medical device and kind of started picking at it and picking at it and saying, well, this must be something more and there must be something more that you're remembering and there's trauma. And 
And so he was kind of like, like the child psychologists were with the Mark Martin case, you know, kind of taking a, you know, a small potential symptom and blowing it up into, therefore, this must be this heavy trauma that you are repressing. Um, so, yeah, I think I would have, I would have made it not a female character and have it not feel like not be an assault um, and, and have it more, more focus on, on the recovered memory. Yeah, I mean, like when I did some research about the episode and I found out that was kind of like the goal of the episode was more about recovered memory. I was like, I don't know if I saw that, you know, like to me, what I saw was essentially assault and, and the and the analogy of rape and being violated. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, was there intention for a social commentary, though? Because, again, this is kind of what the episode turned into. It turns into like almost this allegory for date rape. Uh, you know, like what what really ultimately was the goal by the end of it? Because it kind of does feel a little bit muddled. Well, the goal was, again, that that recovered memories are unreliable. Okay. Yeah. That, again, like the McMartin case, you know, all of these teachers basically had their lives ruined because psychologists were in- inducing these children to remember things like satanic abuse. And the teachers, you know, were totally innocent. And so that was kind of the position that we put this alien Coven in, in that he turned out to be innocent and had his life ruined by this recovered memory process. And that the recovered memory was totally unreliable and that we should not have passed judgment based on that. It kind of reminds me of another episode we talked about in our last episode together, uh, which was the Bellana episode, which uh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's one of the basic. Oh, remember, yeah. Remember, yeah, it very much sounds like that. You know, it sounds like it's kind of the, really, what you wanted to accomplish was essentially in that episode, but uh, in sort of a different roundabout way of doing it. Well, in that episode, the memories were true. Exactly, yeah. You know, and... In this case, they were meant not to be. And I, I guess that's what sort of ended up feeling a little muddled was that, you know, we never really came down conclusively and said, this is what really happened. All we really came down was, uh, you know, on the side was this particular assault did not happen. But what did happen, we don't know. I think that's also one of the weird things about this episode, too, is, you know, here we are today doing this interview right now in 2022. And, you know, like all this talk of cancel culture is happening these days. And to me, it almost feels like our, our alien of the week in this episode, like he very much becomes a victim of cancel culture. And it's so, it's almost prescient too, like what happened in this episode. <laughs> yeah, again, it, it it has not really aged well. I think that, uh, as you said, today we would not make this episode the same way. Well, Lisa, let's move on to the last episode, I believe, uh, under your name here, and that would be Omega Directive. And uh, right. again, I feel like this one has a pretty big story attached to it, also, uh, attached to it also, because I heard like Brandon Braga said this was a, a troubled episode during production. Uh, so what was so difficult about putting this one together? I don't remember it being troubled, quite honestly. Um, I mean, again, it came, it came from a, a pitch, um, and it was, it was about the concept. It was about... What if there was some substance in the universe that was so incredibly dangerous that we had a standing order to destroy it whenever we saw it? That, that was the concept. Um, and then we had to find a way to make to make that relevant to our people, you know, rather than just, you know, we see it, we destroy it and a story, <laughs> you know. And and again, with Seven being the, the outsider character who might have a different perspective on this. She was the one that wanted to preserve it. You know, and and have and and to her, you know, this this omega particle symbolized perfection, which is what the board were all about. And so that would put her directly in conflict with Janeway, and that was that was a conflict that really uh, really worked dramatically. 
I mean, the actresses were very good with it and just the chemistry was great. So any any reason that we could have to put those two at each other's throats was was a good reason. So uh, that's that's sort of the direction that we took this story. Yeah, this is a really good one. I really enjoyed rewatching this one. And, you know, I like a lot of the subtle religious references that are kind of scattered throughout this episode. And that was like an intention of you, right? That, that was part of one of the themes of this particular episode. Yes. Uh, I, I think that, that Jane Wash has a line in which she refers to it as a spiritual experience. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminded me again of another episode we talked about uh, in our last part of this interview here and talking about religion and spirituality with the episode mm-hmm. Sacred Ground. Mm-hmm. But this time around, it's from Seven's point of view. And yeah, I, I kind of want to read into a little bit more of the subtext here and the spirituality of her. So, I mean, a uh, two-part question here, but I guess first... Uh, looking at the spirituality of Seven of Nine, what was it that you were trying to pull out of this character? And uh, well, let's start with that. I'll come back to my second observation. I think that, that'll probably help that. But yeah, what, what was the, the kind of the spiritual goal for Seven here? Well, the idea was that everybody, every you know, every person, every being has an urge to look for something greater than themselves. Uh, I mean, that's that's sort of the base of, of all religion is is searching for something that is greater than you. And so for Seven, that had been the Borg, that had been the collective, you know, the hive mind. And that had been what she was part of that, that was greater than herself. But that had been taken away. And so we wanted to give her something else to focus on, you know, that, that would make her feel like this, this was something that was greater than herself. This was perfection, which was something that she had been seeking, you know, as a Borg. And so we wanted to kind of dangle that in front of her as a, as a possibility. You know, you could find perfection. I'm going to throw another movie here into this conversation. I'm going to throw Rocky into this conversation. And the reason being is the opening scene of Rocky, it's notable for that very first shot being a picture of Christ on the cross. Because Rocky's boxing in a church. And that's our first shot that we pan down to see Rocky in the ring. And, like, the intention that Stallone had for that was to show that Rocky is kind of uh, not necessarily the savior, but this is his redemption story. This is him going through his his journey. And so, you know, I come to then the, one of the final shots in this episode in the Omega Directive, and that's where we see Seven of Nine looking up towards Christ on the crucifix in Da Vinci's home. Right. Uh, so, you know, there's got to be something else there to it. So, I mean, did you have anything in mind when you had Seven looking at this piece of, uh, looking at this artifact, if you will? I think that it was, it was progress in her, her understanding of humanity. You know, in that her experience with this this particle and with being so close to perfection helped her understand the human urge, again, toward religion um, and towards seeking something larger than ourselves. And so I think that's that's kind of what that was a reference to, is that it, it, it gave her a little bit more insight into the human condition. And that's what we were always looking to do with her, was to, was to help her understand hum, humanity and her own humanity. Which I think she definitely did much later on when she discovered cheesecake. Yes. <laughs> As we all have. Uh, yes. Now, side note, too, in this episode, uh, Bellana is not in this one because in real life, Roxanne Dawson was giving birth. Yes. So uh, did that affect the script with you guys at all? Did, did, were any sudden changes required for this one? Well, of course, we knew, you know, obviously when she was due. Um, and so for that period of time, the scripts that we knew would shoot then, she was she was not in very much. Um, so that we could rewrite her, her out of it if we needed to. Obviously, we weren't going to write like a big Bolana episode for, you know, the, the, the episode that we'll be shooting during her due date. Um, we, we knew that she was going to need to be light for, for a few of them. So you guys were always kind of planning a, a contingency, essentially, for when that day happened. Yes. 
That's really interesting. I, I guess that's one of the things you can do when you're doing TV writing is like you can kind of afford to have that sort of schedule to know when things are maybe or maybe not going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. You can you can plan to, to some degree. So, you know, that's the last episode that you are credited as writer, but I know you were still part of the team. Uh, so, you know, I'd like to hear if there were any stories that you were developing that got left on the cutting room floor. Not that I can think of. Um, really, pretty much everything that was was demand driven. It was like, well, you know, you're up, you know, because it was, I think we had something like five staff writers or writers on the time. And so we would basically just take turns. And so when you knew that, you know, your episode was going to be coming up, that's what would kind of inspire me to, to think about, okay, what, what could we do for this episode? Uh, and so once I had gotten to the point, which I didn't have another episode coming up, um, I, I didn't have other, other ideas just randomly rattling around. So, you know, we basically have talked about every single episode that you are credited for as writer. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because they all kind of range different topic and tone and what you wanted to explore. But if there was like one signature Lisa Klink thing that ties them all together, what would you say that was? I'd, I'd like to think it's character um, that, that we that we learn something about our people, um, because that's you've, even even in the most like, you know, heart, high concept sci fi story. You know, ideally, you want to learn something about about your characters. I mean, I'm thinking about like a, like scientific method. You know, again, was very concept driven. But then, you know, we get to the point where Janeway has to make this decision to basically play chicken with these aliens, and and sort of push her to that extreme where she'd be doing that. I think shows us something new about her character, which was, you know, for me, is, is kind of the point. I mean, if we're not learning about our people, then then why are we telling these stories? You know, for me, I really love the variety of episodes you got to write because it's just like it really shows off so many of your talents and what you can do, which is really kind of the fun thing about working on a show like Star Trek, I'd imagine. You really get a lot of freedom to explore different ways to tell stories. Yes. And, you know, if I was going to, like, narrow things down to one thing that I felt was, like, very Lisa Clink, I feel like it's been a theme we just talked about, and that is exploring the spirituality of things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd like to hear, Lisa, for you, like, what did you learn about yourself on your time on Voyager? I mean, was there kind of a spiritual journey that you went on while you were writing these episodes? Uh, or basically, you know, what was the gift that Voyager gave to you besides a really nice paycheck each week? <laughs> uh, it, it definitely, like you said, gave me a chance to kind of use different muscles, um, you know, writing like a, a more action oriented story or a more, you know, thought provoking kind of story. Uh, it really it really let me sort of play in a lot of different sandboxes, <laughs> if you will. Um, and. And tell tell lots of different kinds of stories. And would you say that any of the characters were like an avatar for yourself while you were writing them? Not really. I mean, I, I, there's bits of me in all of them. Um, I mean, I, some people have called me kind of Vulcan. So maybe, maybe I was more uh, in, in line with Tuvok uh, in that way. And I mean, I, I certainly enjoyed writing for that character because I, I, I found that the concept of that race really interesting. Um, and, and again, I thought that Tim Russ was so, so good with it, sort of showing, showing what was behind, you know, the, the mask in a way. So uh, I, I always enjoyed that character. All right, well, Lisa, you know, I want to ask you about a few other episodes that you did not specifically write, but I think you were on the team at the time when these were created. Uh, and I want to start things off here with fan favorite Threshold. Uh, so I don't even know where to begin here, but your, your face kind of says it all. Uh, so <laughs> walk, walk me through Threshold here. And who thought it was a good idea to have salamander sex with Janeway and Tom Paris? Well, 
if you take away like the last 10 minutes, it's actually not a bad episode. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the concept I thought was good. You know, again, you know, what happens if you actually break the warp, you know, the warp 10 barrier? And, and you know, Tom Paris is obviously the person to tell that story with. Um, and I think that, I think that we just never came up with a really satisfactory answer to the question of what happens when you break warp 10. Um, I mean, the idea was, you know, that you evolve into something, you know, the next stage of humanity. But at some point, that got sort of reversed, you know, that that I think it was meant to be sort of ironic that the next stage of human evolution would actually take us back to where we came from, which was, you know, salamanders, <laughs> basically. Um, and then the, the whole Janeway part of it was just to add a little jeopardy, you know, once once we had taken Paris to to the extreme of being essentially the monster of the movie, you know, then then what could he do that would put our people in jeopardy? And that would be, you know, to, to kidnap Janeway and to, to take her on its ride. So I I understand why each decision was made, <laughs> but yeah, I think that the 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 twist ending of we're actually evolving backwards uh, didn't quite work. My biggest thing is just who raised their salamander babies. And, and also, yeah, I just we kind know, of like, abandoned them, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I kind of did. Yeah. And maybe they'd show up another episode. I was hoping they would. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I guess I, 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 I almost want you to name names. I'm like, you know, who had the idea to say, yeah, let's have them have babies too. Like, that's just such a weird way to go out. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I mean, it, it's, it, it's really hard in the story room to, to assign because it's one person will have an idea and somebody else will chime in and then, it's it's really difficult to point to. It was it was so and so's idea. All right, so we're not going to point any fingers today, but uh, I do want to ask about another really great one here. That's Tuvix, uh, and uh, this is a character that is still hotly talked about. Like I feel like every week I see a thread about him somewhere. Um, so uh, let's get your take on the Tuvix story here. What was the right decision with Tuvix ultimately? What do you think that should have been with him? Well, to me, Tuvix was actually some of what what Star Trek does really well which is to, to use sci-fi to pose a really good moral dilemma because Janeway really was, was caught in an no-win situation. You know, it was either essentially kill two crew members or kill one crew member. And with that, there's, there's no good answer. Um, and I think that, you know, just saving two lives as opposed to saving one life was ultimately the way that she had to go. I mean, it's something I, I still see all the time, people talking about here. I mean, when you're at conventions, do fans ask you about Tuvix? Every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to know, since you, I know you do some conventions here and there, like, do what's the most common thing a fan's going to ask you about Star Trek? I, I guess they want to know, like, what it was like to be on the set and what it was like to work with, you know, the writers and the actors and the directors and, and basically what it was like to be part of that universe. And now they have all the answers right here, so they don't have to ask you ever again. So there you go. <laughs> right, now, let's talk about another uh, really awesome episode here, one of my favorites. Um, I want to say top 10, maybe top 10 two-parts, especially two-parts. But yeah, like it's it's a really great one. I love watching this one. Killing Game, this mm-hmm. one. World War II meets Star Trek. Great concept. I love that you guys had two episodes to explore this one here. Yeah. Uh, so what do you remember, if anything at all, from being part of, of the writing team of this episode? I mean, I remember just everybody having fun with the concept of, you know, us being hunted by the Herogen and them 
sort of creating scenarios. And again, I, I, I can't imagine who, who actually came up with that idea and that, you know, we would make it a World War II scenario. But I think they wanted to take sort of classic, classic confrontations from history. Um, you know, and, and the Herogen would obviously see themselves in the position of the Nazis, you know, who were, who were the hunters, you know, and, and so I, I, again, I, I don't know who came up with that idea, but once we came up with it, you know, we really ran with it and we wanted to make it obviously, excuse me, a two-part episode, uh, just to, to have more time to play. Yeah. I'm so happy it was two-parter because like you really did get a lot of time to smell these characters and, you know, they, they do feel so far removed from like the starship stuff, even though that is a major part of what happens, but I mean, they're really living this fantasy and it's so fun to see them like interact in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, because there's always there's little hints that that the actual the character is still in there, you know that you know Tom and Bolana were still flirting, you know even though they they were different characters, and you know Seven of Nine was still acting very much like Seven of Nine even though she was this resistance fighter, uh, and I think that was to me that was the fun part of of you know sort of seeing the little hints and clues you know being laid down in that episode. I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, Year of Hell also. Which, you know, I heard that originally was actually going to be a full-on year. Like, that was kind of the plan, was to have them be chased around for a year. That's true. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, because if you think about it, that was the concept for the whole show. Hmm. Was that we were away from Starfleet. We did not have backup. You know, we couldn't go put in at space dock and get repaired. That, um, you know, we were going to run low on resources. And that, you know, we basically we were on our own. And so I think that that premise kind of got played down a bit in that the ship was always perfect. You know, we had plenty of food, we had plenty of, you know, uh, shuttlecraft, <laughs> you know, that we obviously repaired everything. And so to kind of take that, take that premise the way that, in my opinion, it should have been from the first place and play it out over a season, I think would have been fun. Maybe too much, maybe too intense because if by doing it only in, in a two-parter, we could take it further. We could make it more intense, um, you know, and, and take the ship more into, into disrepair and be starving and wounded and, and all that kind of thing. That I think that, I think that those elements should have been part of the show all along. I just love the concept too, of the whole episode and how they use time as a weapon. Like that's just mm-hmm. such a unique original idea too. Yeah. So what would you say is the episode of Trek that you wrote that you're most proud of and which is the one that maybe you wish you could have done something else differently with it? <laughs> uh, well, the one that I generally consider the, the least successful would be Favorite Son. Um, I, I, have, I think I have said that before. Uh, <laughs> it just, the, the way that it went, I thought, I, I thought was, not, was not interesting from a, from a character point of view or a story point of view. Uh, that it really was was just about having a bunch of really attractive women, you know, lusting after Harry Kim for, you know, evil purposes. And I, I wasn't crazy about that. Uh, like I said, you know, Garrett Wong said that he likes that episode for for totally different reasons. Um, and so, you know, I, I totally respect that, you know, if it, you know, if it was promoting, you know, African, uh, Asian American men being attractive, great, run with it. <laughs> but I, I'm not crazy about that episode. Uh, the one that's probably my favorite, it's probably, there are a few. I, I like Blood Fever a lot. Um, and I like Innocence a lot. 
uh, I thought that those two were both very successful uh, in Sacred Ground. Um, I think because because those were very character intensive episodes. You know, Sacred Ground we really got to got to see Janeway in a different light, and and I like that. Um, and the same with Blood Fever. You know, we got to see Bolana, you know, doing something very different, and we got to see a different side of Tom Paris. You know, that he wasn't just, you know, always, you know, lusting after women, that he actually, you know, was responsible when it came to it. Uh, and with Innocence, you know, getting to see a different side of Tuvok. So I think that that the chance to do that, the chance to kind of take a character and really reveal something new, uh, for me, is what makes a successful episode. Yeah, and you're really great at just really nailing down those character studies and, and really exploring the intimacies and nuances of these cast members. Um, but, you know, with that said, we talked a lot in this episode about folks who didn't get developed quite as much. So, you know, who do you wish that you personally could have spent more time with and written an episode all about them? And, and what do you think you would have done with that person? Uh, well, I never really got to write much with Chakotay. Um, so that's, that's probably the character that I, I feel like I know the least or I knew the least about, but I think that that was, that was universal. I think that none of us really knew the character very well. And the idea of his native American background, I think we kind of paid, paid lip service to it a few times. We never really dug into what does that mean for a man in, in the modern era of, of Voyager and how do you hold on to um, your, the past at the same time as being, you know, part of, of the future, basically. Um, and what made him Maquis, you know, what made him rebel in the first place. I think that there was, there was meat to that character that we never really dug up. I would agree with that for sure. Yeah, there's a lot. I think that could have been totally explored. And uh, mm -hmm. maybe the books did some of that. I don't quite know. If anybody out there knows, go ahead and let me know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, looking now forward to today and what's going on with today's Star Trek. I mean, do you have any interest in jumping back on the crew to write some modern Star Trek episodes? Sure. If they asked me, I'd be happy to. <laughs> and if you had your preference, which show would you want to be a part of? Probably Strange New Worlds. That that seems very, very trekky. <laughs> you know, and that it's 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 really about exploring and and getting out into the universe. Yeah, I feel like a lot of fans in particular have flocked to Strange New Worlds as like the best of the new Trek. Uh, and I feel like a lot of that is because it is a combination of so many like fan favorite elements in the fandom. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they might hide it, but I think to its core, like to me at least, it feels like it's a lot of the greatest hits of Star Trek. Uh, yeah. not, not necessarily pandering, but, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm a big fan of Strange New Worlds. Uh, but, you know, from your perspective as a writer, why have people fallen in love with Strange New Worlds but have had such a harder time with something like Discovery. Well, I think Discovery focused on world building a lot and maybe focused less on the characters. Whereas I think that in Strange New Worlds, I feel like I'm getting to know those people in, in, in a more intimate way, more quickly um, than, than I really felt like I was ever getting to know people in Discovery. And, you know, I feel like, you know, I, I want to talk about this with you, too, because you're a writer and I feel like you've had the, all sorts of crazy criticisms from fans and higher ups as well. But, you know, I, one of the complaints we always see about Picard and Discovery and any of the quote unquote new Trek shows that get the ire of, of fans is they always say bad writing. They're always like, oh, this show is such bad writing. So, <laughs> you know, as a professional writer, when you see a comment like that, what's your first thought? My first thought is that... Yeah. 
you try it. <laughs> that 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 it is really hard. Um, that it everybody thinks that they can write because we can all we can all write letters and we can write emails and stuff like that. And so I think that that people don't really grasp how difficult it is to write good drama. And that most of the time you're not going to get it right. Especially if, you know, again, when we were doing 26 episodes a season, you know, most of the time we're probably going to miss a little bit, you know, but it's, it's the rare, you know, times where we actually really hit the mark, you know, that stands out. And so I think that the same is true for for any show now, you know, that, yeah, you're probably going to have some stinkers and you're going to have some really good ones. And that's, that's always going to be the case. Yeah, I, I feel like for me, a lot of the things that bugs those that that set of the fans, if you will, is uh, I guess the themes that were explored today with modern television. And you know, like it's not like Star Trek in the '90s where uh, you could still have these like lofty metaphors for things. Like today, we are much more direct, and because of that, also we can then dive in deeper into more of the uh, the intrinsic elements of trauma, of uh, of race, and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how much of that do you think is you know, if you were writing a show today, for example, uh, you know, like how would that affect what you do differently? I'm not sure. I mean, again, it's I've I've never really came at scripts from the what is what is the metaphor, you know, or what what issue are we exploring with this episode? Um, that's not really how my mind works, and that's not really kind of how I how I generate story ideas. Would you say you would then like let the characters dictate what the themes would be? I would think so. Yeah, that you know what 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 is relevant about it to this character? You know what what makes this person grow or or what what do we see about them that we didn't know before related to you know prejudice or trauma or anything like that do you feel like the modern star trek shows are accomplishing that i think again they're hit or miss like 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 every show um i think that they're doing some things that, that are great um and some things that you know maybe need a little more, more work i mean i think that picard has done some really good stuff you know, in, in showing us more about that character. I mean, that's sort of the point of the whole show. Um, and I think that that they've surrounded him with some other interesting characters. Um, but for me, you know, the less successful episodes are when they actually, like, showed his past trauma. I, I, I find it more successful when it's, when we see how it's affecting him now. Not so much, you know, let's go back and actually see what happened, but... How is he dealing with it? To me, so, that's more interesting. So a little bit more like tapestry, kind of. Yeah. So Lisa, what are you working on these days? I saw pre-pandemic you were on a show called Pandora, but what's happening right now in your life and professional life? I should be specific with. Uh, professionally, uh, I'm currently writing a scripted podcast uh, called Red Scepter. Uh, it's actually a murder mystery, uh, and I'm having a lot of fun writing that. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure when it's going to be coming out, but uh, I will make a lot of noise on social media when it does. And for folks who don't know, by the way, let's plug those social media handles. Uh, I am on Facebook um, under Lisa Clink one, I think. And then I'm on Twitter, LK Clink. Um, and th those are the, the two that I use most often. I mean, I'm on Instagram, but I almost never post there. All right, so everybody make sure you're following Lisa to see what's new and wait for the Red Scepter to come out. And, uh, man, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because, you know, we've talked about some mystery episodes here and there. Those are, like, to me, some of the hardest things to write, I feel like. Like, how do you write a, a mystery, especially a murder mystery? Like, those just boggle my mind completely. I could never do that. It, it was challenging. I, like I said, I had post-it notes all over the wall about, you know, what, 
what clue would lead us to this suspect and then what would clear that suspect and point to somebody else. And it was a challenge. I got to say, that's that's one of the hardest things I've ever written. Right, so Lisa, just a few other uh, big picture questions here, if you will. Uh, yeah, I, I usually ask this to my guests. And in your case, it might be a little bit of a different kind of answer. But normally I ask folks, what was their best day ever on a set and worst day on a set? Uh, you're not necessarily on the set. So maybe best day on a right in the writer's room, worst day in the writer's room, or I guess it's maybe best day, worst day professionally. Well, I do actually have a best day on the set. Um, okay. And that was um, the first day of shooting for my Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode, Hippocratic Oath, because it was the first episode that I had produced. And so I got to go to it. I was, as I mentioned, I was doing a Writers Guild internship. And so I was actually on the lot. And they let me go down to the set uh, when they started filming my episode. And walking out of that soundstage and seeing what they had built, which was the planet, you know, where Bashir and O'Brien crash. And they had the crashed shuttlecraft. And then they had all these actors that were done up as the Jem Hadar. And just to see what I had written on the page literally brought to life before my eyes was the most amazing thing. Now, how about worst day? Was there ever a worst day on a set? On set, I, I don't think so, because I really, I just would go down to visit. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't have an official role. And so it's not like I could really like, you know, screw up my job while I was down there on the set. I do remember some frustrating days writing, you know, just trying to come up with like how to make a scene work, um, you know, trying to figure out dialogue and trying to figure out how to, how to move a character from point A to point B in a single scene. Uh, you know, there's certainly some some beating my head against the computer. Well, perfect segue then for my next question. So when you're confronted with writer's block, how do you smash through it and get to whatever the next part of the writing process is? Well, the great thing about being in a writer's staff, uh, a writing staff, is that you have resources. Um, and so you can just go back next door, you know, to, to your fellow writer and say, I'm struggling with this scene. Let me bounce some stuff off you. Um, and you can start tossing stuff around. Uh, when Brian Fuller joined the staff um, in season four, he and I were really very often would go into each other's offices and, and toss stuff around. I think that's how we ended up writing a script together, um, is that we were we were really, really good at solving problems together. All right. Well, how about uh, most valuable piece of advice that someone ever told you, whether it was about life or about writing? Probably when I started on staff at Voyager, I remember Ken Biller told me, don't spend all your money. <laughs> because staff writer money is, is good money. And I remember he told me, don't imagine that you're going to be making this every, every year. You know, there will be some times in which you're not working at all. So save your money while you're making it and don't go out and, you know, blow it on, you know, a new house and a new car and all that kind of thing. And that was very true um, because even, even if you're a successful TV writer, you're going to have seasons in which you're not working. And the, the money that you make when you are working has to carry you through. So that's, that's the advice I would give to new staff writers is don't spend all your money. Very practical, good piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, last thing here, Lisa, or well, actually it's not last thing. I'll come back to that. Uh, so looking across your entire resume here, you know, this can include Star Trek or it could not. It's up to you here. But what is the single most episode of TV that you wrote that you are most proud of? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, it's a big resume to think about. It is. Again, it, it probably would be one of those one of those Voyager episodes. Um, you know, maybe Blood Fever, maybe Innocence, maybe Sacred Ground. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I wrote after that was was a little more light. 
uh, you know, like martial law was just fun, uh, you know, and, and so some of those episodes I think came out, came out like a lot of fun, but I don't know if I would say that they were really insightful. <laughs> and last question for today, Lisa, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? I think it's having all that history around you of, of knowing that, you know, you have the original series and all the movies and the next generation and that you're part of kind of going off of what we were talking about earlier, part of something bigger, you know, that the Star Trek universe has such power and such influence in pop culture um, that to have been part of that and have contributed in some way uh, to something that has affected so many lives and really had such an impact on, on fiction and science fiction. I think that's, that's really what, what means the most to me. Great answer. Uh, now, you know, Lisa, I feel like, you know, we, we've done like over two hours of, of this chat with each other, but I still feel like we've barely scratched the surface of what you do as a professional. And, uh, you know, really, you've done some amazing work, not just on Star Trek. Obviously, I am biased because you did martial law. But, uh, you know, you've written such a, a variety of things and so expertly done. And uh, if you haven't ever put out a masterclass anywhere, you really should. So I just want to thank <laughs> you for really sharing a lot of these inside stories about the behind the scenes things of writing Star Trek and just everything else that you do. So, uh, you know, very grateful to have you on the show this week. Well, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.